Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a bright day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I am your host Scott Challoner today and I'm delighted to be joined first and foremost on the programme by Deborah Orcock-Tyler. Deborah is the CEO of the Directory of Social Change, a charity that supports other charitable concerns to achieve their charity purposes. Um, Deborah, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Hello Scott and you're very welcome. It's a real pleasure having you um, on board this afternoon. Um, The whole reason we're here is to discuss leadership, of course, and really bring that into focus. And normally that's what we tend to dive straight in with. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, let's start there. Um, It's been a significant challenge, probably one of the greatest challenges for leaders of our time. And how has it been affecting you over the last few months? Because I can imagine the challenges have been tremendous. Oh, absolutely huge challenges, Scott. I mean, certainly at the very beginning, there was a moment of like, you know, if I'm honest, real panic when we looked at the fact that our income had literally dried up overnight and we had no sources of revenue coming in at all because obviously we rely on charities for our revenue and they rely on fundraising events and, you know, being able to raise money from the public and so forth. And so it was a very, very scary time for the first, certainly for the first six weeks or so. However, of course, what you do is you, grit your teeth and you stick your chin out and you get on with it and you do everything you can to minimize the impact and you maximize any opportunities or any opportunities there are so for example we very very quickly took advantage of the job attention of the not yeah the job attention scheme mm. offered by the government which which really made a significant um, help and also actually it's interesting linking that to leadership because one of the things we did with our staff was we were completely totally and utterly honest with them right from the get-go and when we asked staff to go on furlough we were really honest about the fact that we couldn't guarantee whether we were going to be able to keep paying them, but that if they would go, we had a better chance of doing it. And I think that honesty really paid off. And actually, that's one of the things I've always said, or certainly has always been my experience as a leader, is like if you treat the people you work with as adults and as grown-ups and you tell them the truth, and you know you come from a place of, look, we're in this together and we'll try and solve it together, people on the whole tend to respond incredibly well. And in terms of just managing it from a mental health point of view, I can understand that for staff especially, it's been an incredibly worrying time. Um, Just how has it been managing that side of things, both in terms of not just sort of safeguarding your own mental sanity, but also that of people around you when you've had to reassure them? Well, once again, I, I honestly think it's just about keeping communicating with people. So we communicated regularly, even with our furloughed staff. Obviously, we had to be very careful because you have to apply with the rules and they can't be seen to be doing any work. But what we did, for example, was we set up a WhatsApp group where they could chat with each other. Uh, we used that WhatsApp group to give them information, update them on things that were going on. We had um, every Wednesday at 11 o'clock, we had a, a Zoom that all of the staff were invited to, but it wasn't compulsory. And at that meeting, we chatted, we found out what they were doing, what they were up to. We talked to them about what we were doing. I think, I think to be perfectly honest, the, you know, the real, the real thing is, is that is again, the more you tell people, the more reassured they feel, and the more honest you are about what's going on, that the more it helps to, you know, manage their anxieties. I mean, you can't do anything about people's mental health, and if, you know, yourself as an employer, because actually, particularly during COVID, people worrying about their family and their friends and their own health, never mind anything else. But at the very least, what you can do as an employer is minimise the amount of anxiety they might have. Through, through their employment. Does that make any sense? 
It certainly does. And one thing I'm actually interested to sort of know a little bit more about as well is just how you found it adapting to that sort of remote communication and leadership from a distance, because it's really sort of tried the hand of everybody, hasn't it? Because it's it's been a lot to sort of try and get used to almost overnight. Yeah, it's uh, to be honest, it's exhausting. I mean, we are talking to each other probably more than the, we, we would have done under normal circumstances because staff you wouldn't have seen because we've got staff spread over um, the country and also staff in, in, in different countries, actually. Um, so you wouldn't know, we wouldn't probably have seen them as much as we have done. So there's been a benefit that we kind of see each other more, but the quality of the communication has been less. You know, you really, really miss those, um, you know, the conversations you have as you pass somebody's desk, as you're going into a meeting, as you know, those kinds of things. Um, so it has been tire- and tiring for everybody. But what we did was, again, we really, really tried to think about how can we make it as easy as possible for people to be less tired. So what we did is we completely changed our working practices. So what we said was that everybody would still do the equivalent of a five-day week, but they do it in four days. So everybody would get a three-day weekend. And in fact, when you work it out, it's you know, you're taking, what, seven, eight hours and dividing by four. So it's only really an extra hour and a half or so a day on the four days that they are working. And that's time they would have spent commuting anyway. So it hasn't cut into personal time at all. But what it's meant is everybody gets a proper three-day break. So we have a Friday crew and a Monday crew. And then everybody else, and then everybody works a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And actually, it's quite funny because we ended up with the Friday crew and the Monday crew having a little bit of competition. Because, mm. of course, as charities, what we're trying to do is raise money and get money in and get grants and, you know, generate income. And we had this joke about the fact that the Friday crew got the money in and the Monday crew spent it. <laughs> so it's got a, a little bit of fun there. But that has been massively appreciated by the staff. So much so, actually, that we're really considering it, you know, once we get back to more sort of usual patterns of working, considering continuing with that sort of five days in four days working pattern because they've responded really well to it. And with regard to this period as well, um, it's been a very mentally taxing, challenging and sensitive time for everybody, of course. But there have been some positives to come out of it as well, haven't there? And there could be some things within the lockdown period that could become a more permanent way in how we essentially work and do business in this country as well. Well, certainly in in the charitable sector, one of the massive positives has been how we've come together and collaborated on a scale we never have really before. Mm. I mean, the voluntary sector, although it's a very different economic model to the private sector, nonetheless, we are competing for funding very often. And we're competing for airspace, we're competing for the space you know, for the for the ear of the politicians or the governing parties at the time. Um, but what we have, so there's always been a little bit, you know, perhaps of, of scratchiness there. But what we have actually found is we've come together incredibly well. And I think that will be, that will extend itself. And we, we mm-hmm. created this kind of overarching campaign called the Never More Needed campaign, which is part of our, you know, desperate, sadly failing attempt to get government to understand the value of charities to society and to citizens in the UK. And so that has definitely been a massive positive. Um, and also the fact that, to be honest, I think we've been forced to all realise we're more flexible. I mean, I do, I'm frustrated by this notion, you know, that like that's it, the whole world of work's changed forever, none of us are ever going to have to come into work again, into offices, because that's just nonsense. Of course mm. people will. People need to be together. And actually, it's also, I felt a little bit annoyed by the arrogance of it. The people who are saying that have tended to be the richer, well-off people who've got homes that are sufficiently large to be able to accommodate a working from home space. Whereas, you know, at DSC and certainly for lots of charities, many of our staff are living in shared accommodation or with their parents, you know, they're working from home as being perched at the dressing table in their bedroom. <laughs> you know, like one of my members of staff 
shares her house and she basically works from her bedroom. So she's in her bedroom like 18 hours out of every 24. You know, that's, that's, that's not a sustainable way to work. So I think, I think we need to be a little more respectful and understanding of the fact that for those people where the space is perfect for working at home, that's great. But for the vast majority of people, that isn't the case. What is the case, however, is that we now know we can be more flexible. Mm. So we don't have to force people to travel during the busiest times of the day to get to work at nine and leave at five. You know, there's no reason for why people can't do core hours and catch up, you know, later in the evening and, thing like, and things like that. So I think, I think we will absolutely be more flexible in when we allow people to work, be more and be less rigid about our expectations. Mm, certainly. And it's going to be an interesting time because if there is that variable of a second wave, of course, home working may come back in some earnest if uh, things go the way that we really don't want it to. Um, so let's just see what happens and just keep our fingers crossed um, on that side of things over the year, the next few months. Um, and it is about just being resilient mm. and flexible. You know, that's the honest truth about it. It's about, you know, don't have plans set in stone. You know, and again, I think, I think generally that's the message about leadership anyway. You know, is it to be less fixed and less kind of like, you know, this is the plan and we've got to stick to it and to be much more fluid and flexible. And actually, what we've seen, certainly in the charitable sector, is that the charities that are surviving, I won't say thriving because I'm not sure any are really, but the charities that are surviving and hanging on in there are those that have been able to flex and adapt really, really quickly. The ones that are struggling are the ones that have got stuck in like really, you know, laid down systems and processes and ways of doing things that they haven't been able to flex around. Now, just changing focus ever so slightly, when we think of leadership, quite often people think of leaders as being people whose role is to inspire people and provide some direction, show empathy, but also keep people motivated. Now, Deborah, yeah. of course, um, you have been involved in the charitable sector for a very, very long time, but also you are a renowned public speaker and an internationally published author of books on leadership and management. So yeah. channeling all of that experience, um, if you actually had to sort of give some advice yourself to somebody who was maybe stepping into a leadership role for the first time, what advice would you give them to really get them on that track to success, as it were? Oh, gosh, I would, I would say don't try and do people's jobs for them. You know, like we, we work with adults who want to shine, who want to do their work well. You know, it, it's about, I, for me, leadership is about creating a space for other, other people to shine effectively. And also, this, I also have a real mantra, which I talk to my own managers about, which is don't protect support. I think we have, we've built up some really kind of odd attitudes in leadership and management over the, gosh, the millennia, I suppose, which is that leaders are supposed to know better than everybody else. As you just said, they're supposed to be inspirational, they're supposed to buy vision and direction, all the rest of it. And I'm not sure I agree with that, really. I think, actually, the, the real role of the leader is, as I said, to create the space where other people can shine, to support them so that they can shine, and absolutely not to protect them. You know, I get really frustrated with leaders who say we mustn't tell people X, Y, Z because they'll overreact or they won't be able to handle it or they'll start looking for jobs or, you know, it will worry them. I'm like, that's disrespectful to the adults working in your organization who have as much right as you do to know what's going on. Treat them like adults. Tell them the truth. And if the truth is unpolitical and hard and difficult and stressful, then put in place those support mechanisms to help people to deal with that. You know, give them the space to talk or to grieve or to be anxious, all the rest of it. So I would say trust the people around you. Trust them. You're not better than them. You can't be better than them. But if you allow that and let them shine, you'll be absolutely fine. And that's definitely what I found at DSC during this crisis. You know, my staff have completely and utterly shone and they've absolutely outshone me. They've been the inspirational ones, to be perfectly honest. That sounds a bit like, doesn't it? I imagine, you know, listeners are going to be like, oh, 
customer over here with an apple pie, but it's genuinely been my experience that that's the truth. Mm, I think it's a balance, isn't it? Of course, you have to be there to go to when advice is needed, but you have to make sure that you're stepping back and letting people sort of try things for themselves. And when they do make one or two mistakes, not have that blame culture in place and just let them learn from the experience because that ultimately is how we develop. And it's the same in leadership, isn't it? We're never finished articles within our roles. We're constantly learning, constantly developing. And in fact, the COVID-19 pandemic has sort of shown that um, in a whole new light, hasn't it? We've all had to adapt to this and learn well and it's also about recognizing that i, I in my organization this is absolutely true for most of you, i'm not the expert in anything you know i'm not the expert in marketing i have a marketing director who's the expert in marketing i'm not an, an expert in fundraising i'm not an expert in finance so it's about you trust the people you've employed to be the experts to advise you on what decisions to take rather than the other way around so i would say that it's more often i'm being advised as a leader about what sorts of decisions we should be taking on behalf of the organization rather than the other way around because they're the experts you know, and I think we have to get off this notion that we as leaders, or even behaving, that we as leaders know everything. Because of course we don't. We can't possibly. And if we know more than the people we employ, we're either employing really completely the wrong people, or we're managing or leading our organisations really badly, in my view. And having just um, talked about that, um, I think it only serves that we also talk about some of the inspirations behind you in your career um, as well, Deborah, as you become an expert in the uh, the field of leadership. Um, yeah. What have been some of the like big influences and maybe some experiences as well that have uh, sort of affected you in your career and maybe some of those figures that you've looked up to as well throughout your life? Yeah. Well, I was very, very lucky and that very early on in my career, I um, went to work as an administrator, actually, at an organization called the Industrial Society, which possibly some of your um, listeners will have heard of. It, it doesn't exist anymore. But the Industrial Society was itself a campaigning charity that was campaigning to improve the world of work. And I got incredibly good training there about leadership and about engaging other people. You know, so lots of the values that I have were inculcated to me from that organization. And in fact, the organization had such a powerful influence on people. Even even though it, it sort of closed down, um, what happened was there was a reunion of a whole load of people who used to work there. Have you ever heard of ex-employees of an organization that no longer existed getting together to you know, mourn the fact that it no longer existed? It was that powerful an influence on me. Um, and in terms of you know, who influenced you along the way, it, you, I think it, it's really difficult to pin down like any one individual you know, I mean, there was one chief exec I had in industrial society, chat for Tony Morgan, who I personally found very inspirational. And he wasn't at all. He wasn't a very good public speaker. He wasn't particularly inspirational in the way in which he spoke. He was quite quietly spoken. You know, he didn't sort of force himself. You know, he wasn't what sort of white charger kind of leadership. But what he did do is he just gave you the space, you know, and trusted you to get on with it. And if you failed, you know, you didn't really get into trouble. It was just, okay, go on, give it another go. So, you know, it's it's you know, for me, I've been lucky that I've been surrounded by people who've said, okay, you know, even I, I think, for example, years ago when I first came to DSC, we had a massive financial crisis, which is, you know, largely my fault because I completely took my eye off the ball. I was a brand new chief exec as well. So, and um, I remember my chair at the time when I had to confess that, you know, we were in this really dire financial situation. He said, well, you got us into it, Deborah, you get us out of it. You know, it was, it was just real kind of like, so he didn't withdraw his trust from me, even though I'd made this absolutely walloping great mistake. And I think it's those sorts of actions and behaviors. So it's not so much individuals because, you know, those same individuals who I've just said I really admired also really pissed me off, to be honest, sometimes. But actually, it's about the fact that it's the behaviors in which they engaged, which I found most inspiring. And that's about, you know, having the space and also being trusted 
even when you get it wrong. And I think the example you also mentioned there as well also shows that leaders don't have to necessarily be good public speakers who put themselves on pedestals. Some of the most influential people out there can be the ones working behind the scenes and speaking to people on a one-to-one basis and just taking the shackles off and letting people do their own thing. Absolutely, Scott. And actually, I've found that some of the most powerful leaders I've come across don't have formal leadership positions. You know, they're the, key, they're the you know a key person within the organisation who the staff really engage with and listen to. Certainly in our sector, an awful lot of the most powerful and influential people are volunteers. You know, they don't have, you know, paid positions at all, and yet they're people who, you know, lead through great change. So, yeah. Now, unfortunately, uh, Deborah, our time on the uh, the programme this afternoon is drawing to its close. But just before we do wrap things up, um, I'd like to talk about the future because we know that over the course of this next year, until we find a cure or a vaccine for COVID-19, we're going to have to, to continue to adjust to this new normal way of living and of working. But what is next for you and for your organisation? Where do you see yourselves in 12 months time? And what are you really hoping to achieve over this period? Well, so firstly, I hope we're still in existence in 12 months' time, and I think that for many organisations, that's about the best you can hope for right now. In terms of what we do, as what we achieve as an organisation, there is a massive, massive problem of a breakdown in the relationship between the state, you know, our government and our sector, the, the charitable sector. And that there's a real challenge for us as sector leaders to try and get government to understand how critical we are. So, for example, if you think about what's been going on during the COVID crisis, understandably there's been a real focus on jobs and like trying to save people's livelihoods the problem has been is that the government has tended to look at our sector in the same, in the same lens that it looks at the private sector which is about well it's about jobs and, and the line I think from the chancellor was you know we can't save every job but the difference in our sector is that every job you lose is a service that isn't provided to a vulnerable human being it's one less bed in the hospice it's you know less access to domestic violence services it's somebody falling who, you know who's been going through addiction um, recovery suddenly falling off that because there isn't a coordinator or a counsellor or a therapist to support them through it. So I think that our biggest, biggest challenge over the next 12 months is to try and get this government to understand that, you know, in our sector, it's about human lives at the end of it. It's not about jobs and about livelihoods. It's actually about lives. And that's a massive, massive challenge, which we are not making much of a dent in at the moment, but I'm absolutely determined we are going to get them to see how important our sector is. It's not about the jobs that we provide to people. It's about the services that we provide. Mm, it absolutely is and I certainly wish you all the luck in the world and hopefully getting the government to see that and really sort of view the charitable sector as being as important as it is because it should get the recognition certainly that it merits and I actually think just given how enlightening above all things it's been having you joining us on the program this afternoon Deborah it would be wonderful to welcome you back onto the show with us and catch up at some point in the next year surely just, of course of course and we can just not just of course catch up on how things are getting on at the directory of social change itself but also just reassess where we are as a country at that point in time and whether we're seeing that action that needs to be taken wonderful Thank you ever so much, Deborah. And most importantly, until we do hopefully get to speak again, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on. It's been a real pleasure having you today. And you too, Scott. Thank you so much.
I was speaking on the programme today to Deborah Alcock-Tyler, CEO of the Directory of Social Change. And I would also reiterate that message to all of our listeners today. Do please continue to take care, look after yourselves and others. It makes a real, real difference in keeping people safe and ultimately saving lives. Um, Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. Um, He has enjoyed a distinguished political career Lord Blunkett, despite being blind from birth, having held a number of senior positions in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair, and served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He has been a member of the House of Lords since August 2015. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett, and that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 
2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere 
uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people 
to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? 
that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver 
the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent 
professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. 
What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.